ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. We are going to dive into several ETF stories from the past week, including the launch of a two-times-long VIX Futures ETF and an inverse VIX Futures ETF. These are both from Volatility Shares. And yes, I can't help myself. I've got to point out, still no Bitcoin ETF. But you can now get leverage VIX exposure, or you can short volatility, whatever your cup of tea is. Just no Bitcoin ETF, but uh, I, I digress. In any event, Laura and I will discuss these products and how they differ from some previous offerings here, including the infamous XIV, which blew up in 2018. We'll also discuss some pretty big news out of Morgan Stanley last week, who's planning on launching their first ETFs, another major brand name entering the ETF space. And then also DoubleLine, another huge name, they're actually launching their first ETFs uh, today. So we'll touch on both of those. And then if we have time, we may also get into uh, Charles Schwab rolling out their direct indexing platform pretty soon. So a lot for us to discuss. I'll then be joined by Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, of course, a top three ETF issuer. And we're going to look at ETF flow so far this year and also talk financial markets. I always love hearing Matt's perspective on these. I feel like he has a real knack for reading ETF flows and putting some context around them. And then we'll also discuss the state of actively managed ETFs, which Matt's very bullish here. He thinks we could see $600 billion in active ETF assets by the end of next year. I mean, we're currently at around $300 billion, so a doubling in pretty short order. We'll find out why uh, Matt's so bullish. And then to close this week, I'll be joined by Mamadou Abu Sar, co-founder and CEO of V-Square. 
He's going to spotlight the V-Shares U.S. Leadership Diversity ETF, ticker symbol VDNI, which uh, just launched in December. And as you might gather from the name of this ETF, it seeks to hold companies with diversity at senior leadership positions. When you think about board composition and executive officers, the thought here is that diversity at these levels is an indication of a healthy company culture. That diversity then filters down throughout the uh, workforce and can obviously help drive positive company performance. So I'll have uh, Mamadou lay out the case for that. And you're going to want to hear from uh, Mamadou. He's a truly impressive individual. I'll give you his resume later when he joins me. I, I, I was blown away. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And by the way, congrats on the big Final Four win. They were playing downtown here. I could hear it from a house. Yeah, I'm on about two and a half hours of sleep right now, believe it or not. So we'll see how this goes. <laughs> it's going to be a uh, an uphill slog for me uh, this morning. But oh, what an what unbelievable game. Just a blast. What a night. Oh, unbelievable. Okay, so uh, look, last week, Volatility Shares launched two what I guess you could say are somewhat controversial ETFs. I'll let you get into that. But the two ETFs are the two times long VIX futures ETF, ticker symbol UVIX, and the one, uh, negative one time short VIX futures ETF, SVIX. Now, both of these come a little over four years after the Velocity Shares Daily Inverse VIX short term ETN, ticker XIV, blew up. Right, wiped out like mm -hmm. what two billion dollars in investor assets. So. I, I guess I'll just ask you, what's your initial take on these? And I know it's uh, tough not to get into the weeds on, on these types of products, but maybe you can offer at least a few basics on how these things are uh, structured. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is actually a very good timing for this conversation because we're starting to see volatility pick up in the markets again, or at least we were last month, right? The VIX hit uh, one year high on March 7th. So kind of knowing what your options are and what's available for you to hedge that volatility uh, with volatility linked ETPs, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's a very useful bit of information to know. But it's impossible to talk about this kind of stuff without getting a little bit into the weeds and getting a little, a little nerdy. So just fair warning listeners. <laughs> but um, so first off, uh, you know, UVIX and SVIX, right, the new funds. They are a lot like the volatility products that did blow up during Volmageddon, you mentioned uh, four years ago, XIV, Kerploded, uh, market, basically what had happened was that market volatility spiked. And this was a ETF that was tracking the inverse. So when the volatility spiked, when the VIX spiked, its value went down. The uh, price sank about 90% in a single day, and ultimately the note had to be closed. Uh, trapping, you know, two billion in assets uh, already in or still in the fund. So, there's been a lot of thought since then put into how to better design a volatility product. I think you're starting to see some of that here with UVIX and SVIX. The first big difference is that UVIX and SVIX aren't ETNs; they're ETFs. 
And that matters because they're actually holding the volatility futures themselves in their portfolio. And that has all sorts of construction implications I won't get into, but one of the big ones is that since you're holding futures contracts, uh, you are getting a K-1 tax form, uh, just as you would with a commodity futures product, right? But on the flip side, it also means that you're not subject to the counterparty risk of maybe an issuer going bankrupt or suddenly closing, you know, calling the fund or whatever. Um, These aren't the only volatility futures ETFs on the market. ProShares has at least one under the ticker VIXY, for example. But I think it is notable, given some of the stuff that we've seen in the ETN space over the past few years, that the issuer uh, is, is opting for the ETN structure. You know, there's been a lot of discussion in the media, and even you and I have talked about how ETNs are letting out this long, slow death rattle. <laughs> Nobody seems to be wanting to, to use this structure anymore. And, and uh, you know, this is just another case in point on that. I was just going to say another big difference about these products from XIV is how the price is actually calculated. And that is, uh, you know, the valuation for these products is taken by averaging the prices of futures contracts over a set period of time. That's the last 15 minutes of the trading day. And that matters because, you know, in contrast, XIV was using just the settlement price of the futures. So by averaging the prices, uh, that matters because and just, like end-of-day settlement in the futures market can get kind of funky and uh, it can be very me- messy in something like VIX futures specifically. So by averaging these prices, you're kind of reducing the investor's exposure to that messiness, uh, especially during you know rebalancing periods and so on. So I think that's actually a good iteration on, um, on, on the theme here. The other thing that I saw was that they're uh, limiting trading in the uh, volatility futures to no more than 10% of the volume during a given rebalance period, right? So I'm assuming you could just extend the rebalance period. And and I guess the ETF probably wouldn't track as closely on a daily basis if you had extreme market volatility. But at least you you don't don't have to do that full rebal, you know, at the end of the day. So I I guess any thoughts on that? Yeah, I wasn't going to get into that because I assumed it was too deep in the weeds. But I think I'm 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 open for it. <laughs> I think it's a good thing. I think it it provides the issuer a lot more flexibility to make sure that they're not caught in that trap that they were in uh, with you know four years ago that the the issuer found themselves in with XIV. Um, you know, extending the rebalance period, like you said, gives them a little bit more, uh, you know, ability to swerve if things are getting messy or hairy in the underlying VIX futures market. So again, it's one of those iterations on a theme that is making a better product for the volatility, um, you know, for volatility investors. One thing I should point out, though, is that these funds are super expensive, you have to sort of dig into the prospectus to find out this information. But UVIX's expense ratio is 165 basis points. Asfix's is 135. So, you know, the usual caveat applies, right, with all leverage and inverse products and all volatility ETPs, but especially leveraged and inverse volatility ETPs, you know, those two great tastes together. These are not products meant to be, you know, held for the long term sat on for months at a time, you're going to get killed in the fees if you do that. You know, I guess on that note, in terms of 
how long to hold these products. You, you mentioned, obviously, there's a lot going on in the markets right now. We have seen an uptick in volatility with uh, Russia, Ukraine, inflation, rising rates. I, I'm curious, who do you think is really using these volatility products? Is it sophisticated traders? Is it a certain type of advisor who uh, perhaps is hedging or making tactical uh, decisions? Is it retail investors? Like, How do you think these products are actually being used in portfolios? That's a very good question, and we can't necessarily know for sure, right, because trades are anonymous. But I think there's two main classes of folks who are using these products. One, it's the sophisticated traders who want to hedge out the volatility and who are using these as a tactical trade. You know, they might hold it for a couple of weeks or a month to, you know, profit from uh, volatility as, you know, VIX is spiking. Um, they can be an effective hedge when the market's going haywire. Uh, then you have folks who might be more on the retail side, performance chasing. They see the VIX spiking, which makes these products go up in price. And so they want to get in on it. And, uh, you know, maybe they get in a little too late and they stay a little too long. Right. But um, I think those are the two main classes of folks who are using volatility products. I don't think your average financial advisor who is setting up, a, you know, a buy and hold model portfolio across all of their their many clients um, is implementing these on a wide scale and, and just piling into volatility products. Um, but they can be a very effective tactical hedge when you need them. I'm not sure if you've had a chance to uh, check yet, but do you know what investor interest has looked like in these so far? I know it's it's obviously very early, but have you had a chance to check flows or, or trading volume, those sorts of things? It's interesting. So UVIX and SVIX flows into those products is still sort of modest, right? I mean, these are early days, uh, so they haven't, I think UVIX brought in $4 million and SVIX brought in $6 million. Uh, but volume has been really strong. Trading volume has been, been very strong, uh, interestingly enough. So I think we're going to see some good usage out of these funds by the trading set. So keep your eye on them. Uh, there could be big things ahead. You had mentioned that uh, ETNs are, I, I guess, on life support at this point. I mean, that market does seem to be dwindling and I think about just here over the past week or so, we saw uh, Barclays suspend creations on the iPath Series B, S&P 500, VIX short-term futures ETN, BXX, and also the iPath Pure Beta Crude Oil ETN, uh, oil. And these then traded at premiums. And I, I bring this up, obviously, that highlights a difference here in that UVIX and SVIX, as you uh, hit on, those are ETFs, not ETNs. But uh, in terms of the ETN topic, I mean, do you think that the days are numbered here. I mean, I think about the problems again in VXX and oil doesn't seem like, you know, banks want to support these products in the manner that they should. And, and my personal opinion on that is I think it gives all ETFs a black eye, even though these, you know, these, we're talking ETNs, the average headline and the average investor out there, they see issues with these products. And I just wonder if that, those, that negativity spills over into just the broader ETF market. I mean, any, any thoughts on that? I am so glad you brought up VXX because I think this is the most interesting, juicy story that we've seen in the ETF market in a while. Um, you know, I, I so just to back up a second, what happened here is that 
In March, Barclays abruptly closed creations for these two products. A lot of folks were wondering, well, what what was going on? Because there was no signal. Um, was there some sort of like concern about volatility spiking or, you know, some sort of trading hitch or whatever? What had actually happened was that Barclays had accidentally, oopsie doopsie, issued $15 billion more in its structured notes products than it actually had the green light from the SEC to do. VXX, oil, these are structured note products. They fall into that category. So kind of a big deal, kind of a bad thing for investors. And so now Barclays has to buy back the extra shares at the original purchase price. And that's going to cost them I've seen estimates anywhere from 450 million to 600 million. So nobody nobody really knows uh, how Barclays bungled this issuance limits and Barclays isn't talking, uh, but now they have to kind of fix the mistake. So this um, is one of those interesting case in point stories about we're always talking about counterparty risk and you got to watch out for the 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 issuer risk of the ETN and you know it seems like such a theoretical uh, when you're talking about these big banks that are issuing debt notes of course they're not going to have any issues well mistakes happen right Barclays is the second largest issuer of ETNs and even they can make an oopsie doopsie goof right. Lehman Brothers was another bank that huge. Nobody thought it was gonna gonna go belly up, and then and it had a couple of ETNs. I've actually written stories in the past trying to track what happened to the money in these ETNs, and it's it's difficult to suss out. So I think that is something <laughs> that is not helping <laughs> encourage people to use ETNs. They do have pros. They do have their benefits to that structure. But it seems more and more that the risks of using them and the risks of that structure just not worth it, right? So no, I, I agree. It just feels like most of the time when we see some sort of negative headline across the industry, it's an ETN, <laughs> you know, like clockwork. <laughs> I think about all the stories you and I have covered over the years, and you know, three fourths of them have, have had something to do with ETNs. But in any event, okay, let, let's move on. I do want to hit you with a few rapid fire ETF topics. And uh, what I'll do, Laura, I'll just throw these out. You can offer a quick hot take and and we can go from there. So first, we got this news last week that Morgan Stanley is planning on entering ETFs. And from my perspective, I think obviously this makes a ton of sense, Uh, even though Morgan Stanley is late to the ETF party. They have something that a lot of other issuers don't, which is built in distribution, right? They they have distribution through advisors and model portfolio offerings. They can absolutely get their ETFs in front of investors. Do you have any quick thoughts on uh, Morgan Stanley getting involved here? Do you think they can find that path to success? Well, that was going to be my hot take, right? I think that they do have their work cut out for them. Um, Morgan Stanley and, uh, you know, the brand is so connected with the traditional finance space, mutual funds and and just kind of the way that finance has already always been done. I think they do have a lot of headwinds in terms of getting their products in front of ETF buyers. But like you said, the difference here is going to be their 
their distribution platform. They're a huge, huge uh, megalith of, of, a, of a distribution platform. So um, I think in the same way that we saw some of the legacy mutual fund issuers get into the um, ETF market and find some success, for example, uh, Dimensional is a great example there. Um, you know, having that distribution power can the power of that cannot be under you know overstated enough? It's 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 going to be huge for them. I would not be surprised if we saw Morgan Stanley's funds really start to to soak in assets very quickly. It all matters, however, on how well they have uh, the 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 chits in a row or the ducks in a row to take advantage of that distribution platform because we've seen other issuers come into the space who. Um, looked like they might make a big splash, and then you know they didn't have the, what they needed behind the scenes to to make it happen. So you know assets into their products have floundered. I don't know. Uh, I think all the signs are there for Morgan Stanley to uh, really come out of the gate strong. Um, so we'll we'll see. I'm I'm definitely grabbing my popcorn and watching. <laughs> no, I think that's extremely well said. I mean, the opportunity is there. It's whether or not they can execute. And in terms of that opportunity, I saw a great stat last week from uh, Bloomberg's Eric Valchunas, where um, he noted that wirehouses own some eight hundred billion dollars in ETF assets. Now, that, that's not just Morgan Stanley. That's UBS and Wells Fargo, Merrill Lynch, right? Those types of firms. But obviously, the point is Morgan Stanley has a decent chunk of that eight hundred billion, and they can obviously switch and use their own ETFs instead. And they have that built-in asset base, so that'll be something to watch. I'll give you one other uh, ETF fun fact, uh, a little history lesson. Bloomberg's Henry Jim. He noted that Morgan Stanley actually launched the first international ETFs all the way back in 1996. They were called WEBS, the World Equity Benchmark Series. And then they were bought by iShares, right? Or they were they spun it out into iShares. <laughs> yeah, p- pretty uh, pretty interesting. Okay, so another new ETF entrant actually today, Double Line and Jeff Gunlock. Now, it's interesting. They partnered with uh, State Street back in, I believe, 2015 on the Spider Double Line Total Return Tactical ETF, ticker TOTL. But, you, you know, the two ETFs they're launching today, those are under their own umbrella, the, the, their own ETF trust. And the two ETFs are the Double Line Opportunistic Bond ETF, ticker DBND, and the Double Line Schiller Cape U.S. Equities ETF, ticker DCPE. Anything you would note about Double Line uh, getting into the ETF game? Again, obviously they have a lot of assets, but a different model here than somebody like Morgan Stanley. What, what do you think about their prospects? So I think it's uh, with Double Line specifically, uh, Jeff Gunlock's name is so huge and so widely tracked. I, I remember, I mean, just <laughs> from from the earliest days of being in the ETF journalism business, anytime Gunlock was mentioned uh, in the press, it was always, uh, you know, the, the readers would come and flock to you, right? So um, I think there's a, a strong brand here in the same way that ARC has Kathy Wood as a strong brand, as a strong central presence. That's going to be a, a very good asset for them as they are uh, coming into an increasingly crowded ETF space. They need that personality there to, to set them apart. Um, I, I think it's they, they've got a leg up, right? They're starting, um, you know, hitting the ground running with that. Uh, now, the, the question is, um, you know, where do they go from here? And we'll see. We'll, we'll just have to see, I guess. 
Well, to me, this is just another example of the uh, ETF floodgates being completely open now. I, I tweeted this out, yeah. but if you look at their uh, press release, Double Line's president said that they have uh, essentially diversified their distribution channels to match the preferences of investors and their intermediaries. And they also said that actively managed ETFs are no longer a, a, a niche option among 40 act funds and that active ETFs are well on their way to becoming a mainstay for investors and advisors. It's just so interesting seeing a legacy uh, asset manager make that switch and you know, clearly talking up uh, ETFs. I think we're going to see more of that, even from ma- asset managers who have just waited too long to get into the space. I feel like they're all seeing the light now and we're going to see more uh, launches like this. I think everybody, I, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, who's left who doesn't have an ETF strategy, <laughs> right? And if you're one of those asset right. managers, you, you better get on the uh, on the ball. Okay, um, real quick, and, and by the way, I can't tell you how pleased I am that we're going to get through all of the topics that I had outlined here today. I think that's going to be a first for us. <laughs> we never get to do that, especially talking volatility. I, that could have really uh, bogged us down. But uh, I'm doing better than I thought here this morning on, on a few hours of sleep. Okay. Charles Schwab announced they're going to be launching their direct indexing platform. It looks like by the end of April. It's called Schwab Personalized Indexing. There's a $100,000 account minimum, costs 40 basis points. I saw Fidelity actually just launched their direct indexing platform last Friday. That's called Fidfolios. Uh, That has a $5,000 minimum and also costs 40 basis points. And obviously, we don't have time to get into the whole uh, direct indexing as an ETF killer topic and, and all of that. But I'll just ask you, I mean, as these platforms become more widely available, which they are and available to the to the average investor out there, do you expect them to uh, dent ETF flows at all? Do you, do you think it's going to have a negative impact on ETFs? I don't. And the reason is because I think that the benefit of direct indexing is primarily tax-related. Uh, you can do some of the same tax loss harvesting uh, you know, uh, machinery in with ETFs. Uh, it's you can get even more granular with uh, with direct indexing, and that's going to be huge for high net worth investors and investors who uh, you know really get a significant benefit from that. Um, that said, ETFs are extremely convenient. We're seeing massive flows this year. I think you mentioned this is pr- I. Th- I want to say this is the second best quarter on record for ETF flows. It's if not second best, it's definitely up there in the top three or top five. We've just seen incredible flows accelerating into ETFs. That's not going to stop anytime soon um, because they're convenient. It's just a really easy vehicle to use um, if you're a retail investor, whether you're an institution, whether you're a financial advisor. Um, Direct indexing requires a little bit more babysitting and a little bit more more hands-on of a touch than I think many investors um, and many advisors have the bandwidth for, right? We're not, um, whenever we talk about direct indexing, uh, it's, it's, it's so promising. It's such an interesting technology, uh, but financial advisors are strapped for time, right? They don't have model or, you know, they they don't have a lot of bandwidth uh, to manage their business, manage their clients, manage all of this and do all of the investment in, you know, the the hands-on investing stuff. That's why we've seen an explosion in the use of model portfolios. 
So they're looking for convenience. They're looking for outsourcing as uh, you know, outsourcing that investment expertise. Um, so until like direct indexing can provide that sort of uh, time saving and bandwidth saving solution for advisors, I think you know it's it's not going to be an ETF killer specifically. It might shave away some of the assets, but on on the whole, from the popular standpoint. ETFs are probably here to stay. Completely agree. I think everybody knows where I stand on this. I think direct indexing certainly has a a place in the toolbox for advisors and and investors. There are uh, strong use cases in certain situations. But to to what you were saying, I mean, you can invest in the entire U.S. stock market using an ETF that costs three basis points right now with with something like the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF. I I just said the cost on these direct indexing platforms are, are 40 basis points. So I, I think you have that. And then I always come back to the fact that probably the biggest concern for me is when I see direct indexing, that, that's customizing portfolios. Customization is active management. And we, we can have a whole debate about whether or not active management is good or bad, but that's what it is. Customizing a portfolio is active management. And I, I just wonder between the increased cost and tinkering with the portfolios, are investors going to have better outcomes? And I, I totally just agree. Yeah. I, I, and I just can't get my head around that. But in any event, Laura, fun chat this week. Always love our conversations. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to exchange. Yes. We'll see you next week. <laughs> that was uh, Laura Krigger, managing editor of ETF Trends. As our lives and world grow more dependent on digital data, the companies that safeguard our networks and information become increasingly vital. The Wisdom Tree Cybersecurity Fund, WCBR, provides targeted exposure to innovators in cloud security, privacy, digital trust, and more. Learn more at wisdomtree.com cyber. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at wisdomtree.com. Read it carefully. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. My next guest is Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers nearly 140 ETFs, about $1.1 trillion invested. And I would say Matt's like an ETF Swiss Army knife. I'm not sure there's any ETF topic he can't uh, speak to. And he's now on the line with me from Boston. Matt, always a pleasure. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, Nate, thanks for having me. Watch today be the first time I get stumped. Well, it's definitely not the first time I get stumped. I get stumped all the time. I just... I don't know. Maybe I have good luck when I when I go on your podcast. Well, I will try my best to uh, to stump you. I, I doubt that's going to happen. And what I thought we would do, let's start bigger picture with ETFs. I do feel like you cover the macro ETF picture as well as anyone out there. And I had an opportunity yesterday to take a look at your monthly ETF uh, flows recap, which, by the way, I recommend everyone check this out. It's posted to the State Street Spider Insights page every month. But, uh, Matt, if you look higher level, I think the headline has to be that we've already seen nearly $200 billion in inflows this year, which I think is remarkable just given the market conditions. So maybe start with a few thoughts on that, and then I'd be curious, what else are you seeing at a broader level with ETF flows? Yeah, so in Q1, ETF took in $195 billion, um, and that was after $97 billion in March, which was the third most ever 
for ETFs, which I think is really interesting given what happened in March, where you had the Russia-Ukraine war really, you know, kick up in earnest, you know, after sort of starting in, in late February. What was actually even more interesting is that, you know, in January, there's actually some pretty muted inflows as a result of some tax-related selling, you know, tax loss harvesting, buying in, in mass in December, and then selling in um, in January. So, you know, really like 50% of the flows came in during February and, and March, and those were the two months where you had some pretty volatile uh, markets, not only from an equity perspective, from a bond perspective, and I think the really interesting thing is that bonds took in, you know, roughly $18 billion. And based on our count, 80% of bond ETFs actually have losses this year. I think it sort of speaks to some of the secular trends within the marketplace where you continue to have more model portfolios and asset allocation tools are being utilized with ETFs. So that just continues to grow. But investors are still allocating into markets that, you know, expected returns are, are quite negative. The only saving grace, I would think, for the fixed income ETF marketplace, well, some others, is on cost, right? So, you know, inherently lower cost, more tax efficient. There's obviously more tools at your disposal from a beta perspective, too. What about on the equity side? What what stood out to you there so far this year? Yeah, it's, it's I mean, so overall, just in general, flows have been equity bias. You know, uh, equity is made up about 80% of the overall Q1 flows. And then within equities, it's mainly been U.S. equity exposure. So in March, U.S. equity exposures took in $60 billion. In Q1, that's $113 billion. Uh, so if you take you know, the percentage of flow, that's 86 and 71% respectively. So when investors have been trying to get into risk assets on the equity side, it's mainly been in, into U.S. equities, sort of you know, the idea of like you know, best house on the block, you know, a little bit further away from the Russia-Ukraine war and the sort of spillover effects from an economics perspective. Also, there's better earnings growth um, as well. So you see more interest into the U.S. market than the rest. But it doesn't mean that, you know, uh, European or uh, EFA or EM exposures haven't received inflows. You know, when we break it out by geography, um, all those other geographies actually had inflows in March with the exception of currency hedged, which I actually thought was a little bit interesting given how strong the dollar has been and currency hedged exposures are actually outperformed. The really interesting one, though, is emerging markets. There was $6 billion deposited into emerging markets in the month of March and $11 billion overall year-to-date. And what I think is interesting is that EM flows are now on this record run of 18 consecutive months. And if you have been buying EM since uh, May of 2021, that has been a, a loss for you. The market has rolled over, obviously. Um, so I really think it's interesting. You know, one of the, the sort of points to, to, to note on that, though, is you know, we don't have a lot of the short interest data yet. My guess is that this is, you know, not just long-only investors. You're probably seeing some flows tied to options markets. You've seen higher um, option activity. But also, you have seen some short interest uh, leak higher uh, prior to the month. So, it sort of speaks to, you know, the past flows. Um, so, investors are probably getting a little bit short here uh, on EM. So, not all of that $6 billion is probably from, you know, people being bullish, if you can be, on EM. You know, emerging markets are really interesting to me. I was actually visiting with several of our uh, advisors in the office last week, and, and this topic of emerging market equities came up. And the gist of it was that with everything going on with Russia, Ukraine, as you mentioned, and then you add in the various concerns around China, which is like, what, 30 percent of, of many emerging market indices. You, you think about a strengthening dollar. 
What's the case for EM right now? Like, like, can you paint one? And I'm not asking you to get out your short-term crystal ball and, and peer into the future, but I, I think it's tough for a lot of investors and advisors to get their head around what the case for EM is. I, I feel like we've heard for years that it's a value play and it's a more attractive place to be than the U.S., but the U.S. has been that best house on a bad block, as you noted. What, what's the case for EM? Well, I mean, and yeah, this wasn't this wasn't planted, but funny enough, like uh, on February 9th, I actually wrote a blog post in our monthly charting the market post um, that was like tough to make a case for EM right now. And obviously, that was before the invasion, which made the case that much harder. But even just sort of taking a step back and taking a quantitative lens at it, you know, if you look at um, earning sentiment, earning sentiment within emerging markets was quite poor. Um, you started to have more downside revisions than upside. Uh, earnings growth is going to be sluggish relative to uh, the rest of the broader market, uh, particularly on the U.S. You know, so sentiment overall was weak. And I think when you look at it from a momentum perspective, you know, price returns really being dragged down by China, um, but also some of the other countries within that. But China had such poor performance, you know, really over the last 12 months um, and continues to be down double digits. You know, that had really dragged EM lower. So when you look at it, you know, we have a momentum scorecard in our chart pack that comes out every month. You know, basically, it ranked last across all major, you know, countries and you know, sort of G10 nations, and then bigger regions um, in pretty much every category. Although we have our momentum scorecard, with the exception of one, and then the only case you could potentially make, again, taking a quantitative lens, was on the valuation side. And you know, valuations were attractive, but kind of like they're maybe cheap for a reason. And if you were looking at sort of a value play again across broad markets, you know, we felt like small caps actually were a better value play. Like they're mm-hmm their valuations were extremely attractive and their sentiment was positive. Um, and they historically have a higher you know, correlation and beta sensitivity to movements and rates and inflation. So like that, if you're looking for the value play on a macro level, that one seems more appropriate. So it's really hard to make sort of this near-term tactical case for EM. It's, it's, you're going to have to have a real steel stomach to buy into EM right now tactically with all the geopolitical risk that goes on with it. Um, longer term, you know, diversification is one of the anchors of the case for EM. There's also a yield component to it, too. You know, emerging market equities do have a higher yield overall. Historically, this has been proven out than developed. You know, right now, the yield on MSCI EM is 250 and S&P 500 is like 180. So there's a yield component to it, too. But again, you know, how much are you willing to sort of take the pain on total return just to get a little bit more improvement in yield? Um, and probably something that's less than like 10% of your overall portfolio from a market cap weighted perspective. Yeah, I, I don't have the. Uh, well, I was gonna say I don't have the chart in front of me, but I remember running uh, EM going back like a decade plus, and it's effectively been dead money, uh, depending upon which date you you pick. Like literally zero total return or barely positive total return over a long time period. It's just amazing. Um, it, Matt, going back to the uh, the fixed income side, which you you touched on a little bit, and, and again, it's clear investors are preferring equities over fixed income so far this year. Um, I, I think that makes sense for a number of reasons, but clearly investors are concerned about rising rates and, and inflation. There's been a lot of talk over the past year or two about the, the quote unquote death of the 60-40 portfolio, right? The, the 40 there. I'm just curious for investors who are allocating to fixed income, where specifically are they putting that money to work? As you kind of peel back the, the layers here, what are you seeing underneath the surface on fixed income flows? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely not high yield. Uh, high yield took, uh, had about two point two billion of outflows in March. They've had twelve billion of outflows in twenty twenty two alone, and you actually so that's a three month period. And you look at a rolling three month basis, and that is by far and away the worst three month period ever. 
you know, the 10th percentile going back, you know, a ways, going back almost 15 years, a 10th percentile three-month flow would have been roughly minus $3 billion. This is at minus $12 billion. And part of the reason is, you know, valuations within high yield are relatively tight. You know, the spread on high yield bonds about 313 basis points. That is in the bottom eighth percentile over the last 10 years. So there's not a lot of upside from a spread compression perspective. And high yields, you know, while it is a credit instrument, still has duration. You know, high yields down about 4.5% this year. 432 percentage points of that has been from duration effects. So what we've actually seen is that investors, rather than you know take that sort of high income approach within high yield, have been continuously adding to their senior loan positions. Mm. You know, senior loans had inflows last month, and that continues a, a, a streak. I think of around 18 consecutive months of inflows. And you know the rationale is you know senior loans, floating rate um, instruments, they're a little more senior in capital structure. So if there is volatility, you know that we've seen lesser drawdowns in periods widening credit spreads. Um, but also the yields are over, you know, four and a half percent. So they're a high income sector and on a total return basis, loans are up, you know, on a, from an index perspective, they're up about 20 basis points while high yields down 4.8. So you have basically a 5% spread there. So if on fixed income is mainly, you know, not mainly because loans only took in about a billion, but that sort of credit trade, it's been loans over high yield in a big way in 2022. And then last, last month, uh, tips, you know, tips through in their hat with $3.4 billion. I think this sort of speaks to itself with the elevated inflation environment that we've seen and are likely to continue to see over the next, you know, uh, handful of quarters. Yeah, and I'll note that State Street obviously offers products covering all the areas that you just touched on. So you do have a senior loan ETF, ticker SRLN. You do have an investment grade floating rate ETF, ticker FLRN. And then, of course, a, a TIPS ETF, SPIP. Um, another area I have to ask you about, is gold. Uh, obviously, State Street offers the most popular ETF here, the Spider Gold Shares ETF, ticker GLD. You also offer the Spider Gold Mini Shares, GLDM. Can, can you offer some context around uh, flows in, into gold ETFs this year? What, what are you seeing here compared to previous years? Yeah, so gold ETFs, they took in about $6 billion in March. That's their third most ever. Um, you know, significant interest. And so our Framing out the rationale, as you've seen positive performance given you know the increase in volatility, you know gold over the last you know three months or so is up about five you know five point seven percent. So that's much better than what bonds and stocks have done. Sort of speaking to their you know diversified nature of gold from the properties of low correlated assets. And in talking to clients, they're like, so you know what's the case for gold? And there's many of them, but sort of put simply, if it's sort of the elevator pitch. Now that we're back to riding elevators in this world. Um, is that you know gold has a positive correlation to uncertainty, right? So high uncertainty, particularly on a macro level, gold all else equal should do well because of its defensive properties. And I think that's one of the driving forces right now from a market positioning perspective and the returns. Um, there's obviously other factors within you know dollar rates, you know, et cetera. Um, but that sort of positive correlation to uncertainty has been helpful, and we've seen investors allocate that way because stocks have a negative correlation to uncertainty. Uncertainty goes up, stocks go down. Um, so we've seen $6 billion in the last three months, but that's not the only commodity space that's witnessed inflows. You know, broad-based commodity ETFs took in $2 billion. That's their third most ever as well in the month of March. Um, and on a rolling three-month basis, they're over $6 billion, uh, which is a record for them. And, you know, both commodities, broad-based commodities and gold, also have a little bit of a connection to inflation, naturally. And so I think that's also driving some of the flow pressures as well, um, in addition to some of the volatility dynamics with respect to gold. 
On the note of uh, commodities, uh, I know you cover individual sectors as closely as anyone. Obviously, State Street offers the select sector spider ETFs. Can you talk more about the energy sector in in more detail? Like, this has been by far the top performing broad sector. So are you seeing that reflected in flows, like in investor interest? Yeah, we definitely have. I mean, the energy sector has best quarter ever, um, you know, up about 40 percent. That's that's definitely going to do it for you. Um, and we've seen flows positioned that way. So in the quarter, $4.5 billion, you know, second behind technology, which you know, continues to be a highly allocated sector, partly because it's one of the largest sectors or is the largest sector, the S&P 500. Uh, but energy just saw a really significant interest, you know, again, $4.5 billion, but also some of the other more cyclically commodity-sensitive segments of the marketplace. We saw materials take in $1.8 billion uh, as well. So it's sort of investors positioning a little bit towards more of those you know, inflation-sensitive equities and natural resources of the world. Yeah, it's amazing. I was looking at some performance figures uh, yesterday. So if you look at, like, the energy select sector, Spider XLE, that's up 40% year-to-date. If you actually go back to the beginning of, of last year, that's up 115%. I, I looked at the Spider S&P oil and gas exploration ETF, XOP. That's up nearly 45% year-to-date, 140% since the beginning of, of last year. So uh, you clearly see the performance there. Um, okay, Matt, we're running a little short on time. I, I, I do want to come back to the bigger ETF picture and ask you about the state of actively managed ETFs. So I saw your recent piece that was titled Why Active ETFs Are on Track for $600 Billion by 2023. Just give us a quick rundown here. So if my numbers are correct, that's a doubling from where we ended last year. So how do you think we get to $600 billion by the end of next year? Yeah, more assets. That's the way we're going to get there, you know. Um, so right now, first quarter, $25 billion of inflows into active ETFs. So you got $300 billion now. Let's just say we prorate that. You know, again, this is a pretty tough quarter from a market's perspective. So $25 billion, prorate that out. We're going to probably be around $100 billion, which would be a record for flows um, for active ETFs. Last year was around 90 This year, potentially $100 billion if we just prorate out what we did in Q1. That gets us to roughly around $400 billion in assets, which was one of the other projections in that post, that by the end of 2022, we'll be at $400 billion. Now, if markets improve from here, you know, stocks you know, continue to rally, Bonds, you know, they've fallen. They're not going to fall as much as they did so far. Maybe sideways. Who knows? And if it's active, you know, perhaps we can, you know, generate some alpha above broad benchmarks. So right there, you get to around 400, you know, billion or so. You know, from there, you have a 200 billion dollar delta. Which, you know, what we've seen pretty much every year is that the following year, the flows are about 50 percent of the assets. So if we're at 400 billion at the end of this year, 50 percent of that's 200 billion. Bingo, bango you're at 600 billion like that. And I think there's also an aspect of last year, 66% of all launches were active ETFs. And most of them were in equities. And there's continuing to, equities are a larger portion of your portfolio. Unlike bonds, they don't have a neg- negative expected real return based on what interest rates are doing. So I think there's a real catalyst here to continue to drive growth. And I think it's going to be, it's going to be equities, it's going to be fixed income, but it's also going to be commodities. You know, some of the uh, heavily allocated uh, active ETFs so far this year have been commodity-based. And I think that speaks to some of the you know, benefits you can have from an active, broad-based commodity strategy, which means you know, allocate based on different role yield patterns and, and what have you. So, I, you know, again, I sort of glibly said more assets, but there's going to be more interest. There's more products in the space. I think the mutual fund conversions are going to continue. And that's going to drive assets because those have been largely successful from an infrastructure perspective. You know, returns need to bear that out. But I think that's how we get there. It's just continued interest along this glide path we've been on for the last few years. 
Well, and again, I know you like to talk about the structural alpha of active ETFs, just the lower cost, the greater tax efficiency. So it it lowers that hurdle that active managers have to jump over. I think we all know about the difficulty in general that active managers have in outperforming the, the market, but certainly the ETF structure can help here. Definitely. I mean, last year, I think it was some respects on the U.S. equity and mutual fund side, you know, more than 80% of those mutual fund strategies paid capital gain. Like, that's not a great investor outcome. And in the ETF space, it was much less, even though they were active. Well, Matt, excellent stuff as always. Am I going to see you at uh, Exchange next week? I will be there. Excellent. On Tuesday. We'll look forward to that. Let's definitely connect. And uh, thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thanks, Nate. That was Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors. The most successful companies don't improve an industry. They invent one. Ride the Moonshot ETF from Direction. These are 50 U.S. companies with potential for significant and disruptive impact in biotech, nanotech, space exploration, and more. The Moonshot Innovators ETF from Direction. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus at Direction.com. Read carefully. I'm now joined by Mamadou Abu Sar, co-founder and president of V-Square Quantitative Management, who's behind the V-Shares U.S. Leadership Diversity ETF, ticker VDNI. This just launched in December. And I'll tell you, Mamadou has a highly accomplished asset management background, Uh, was previously global head of product development and sustainable investing at Northern Trust Asset Management. He's worked for HSBC. Morgan Stanley, Amundi, City. He's had roles in London, Paris, Abu Dhabi, Dakar. He's been around the world. Uh, he's a guest lecturer at the University of Chicago, uh, Harvard, Wharton, and he's now on the line with me from Chicago. Mamadou, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me this week. Nate, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me. Well, before we get to the ETF, I have to ask you, in reading through your uh, very extensive bio, which I was blown away, you made me feel a little bit lazy when I saw all of your professional (laughs) and philanthropic uh, activities, but I saw that you're a French foreign trade advisor, which is appointed by decree of the Prime Minister of France. What does that entail? Well, it entails that I'm French. So I will give that away. <laughs> and then I'm an official representative of, the, of France in the, in the U.S., and I have kind of three main activities or roles, as per se. One is advising public authorities on the attractiveness of uh, France as a place for business, but also the other way around, bringing French companies in the U.S. That's number one. 
Number two is supporting businesses as they are you know, entering the U.S. markets. Um, here in Chicago, if there is a company who is interested in the Midwest, they will meet with me and other advisors. We will help them with being in, introduce them to lawyers, explain the environmental framework, the uh, you know all the legal part of it, and help them get in business. And the other part of the role is also training young people for the international um, trade, so to speak, making sure that uh, French talents uh, are prepared for international career, right? So that's pretty much what the role entails, and it's a great role, and we are meeting on a regular basis. Okay, so tell us a little bit about uh, V-Square Quantitative Management and a, a little bit about why you decided to enter the ETF space. Yeah, sure. And so even though we launched a company in 2020, it was long in the making. And the common denominator amongst the leadership team is that we actually all work together at some point. Three of us are alumni of Northern Trusts in Management. Two of us are alumni of HSBC. And our background are in active quant, factor-based, ETF, and sustainable investing. Matter of fact, the co-founder of, of V-Square and I, Abi Mudashir, worked together in the mid-2000 at HSBC Quantitative Asset Management. Abi was based in New York. He was the deputy head of quant for Americas, and I was a product strategist uh, taking care of his product out of London. And that's when, uh, Nate, we formulated the view that one day we'll come together to build a unique investment firm. Now, life is what it is. You make goals and dreams, and then at the end of the day, it may take longer than expected. So it took us a few years for us to be actually ready to launch our investment firm. But then meaning feeling ready for us meant, uh, A, being trained and apprentice at large firms, running P&L, portfolios, managed team, build a market reputation, and last but not least, at least find what our holy grail, so to speak, meaning when passion meets expertise was all about. And for us, it was using our quantitative skill set and be focusing on sustainability as a theme in V-Square as a company. So that's a bit of the story behind V-Square and why I decided to branch out from a large firm and an amazing role to uh, doing what we do today, uh, having a more focused uh, boutique with our quantitative approach and focusing on sustainable investing. Okay, so let's get into the ETF. Again, the V-Shares U.S. Leadership Diversity ETF, ticker symbol VDNI. This is index-based. Walk us through the construction and the basic investment thesis here. Sure, and I will start with the basic investment thesis because I'm often being asked, you know, okay, there's a lot of headline around diversity, but what it means. First of all, I like to use a different term at the end of the day. I call it diversified human capital. I think we can all agree, Nate, that ultimately uh, human capital is the, the primary source of capital for any company. So you could obviously add, you know, what technology you add, but it has to be led by a human being somehow. Okay. And so here's the couple of news I would like to break for our audience and, and, and as we're having that conversation. First of all, intelligence is actually normally distributed. Okay, which is fascinating, right, when you think about it. Uh, we always think about, well, people with higher IQ and so on. But the reality is that 99% of the people fall under a large distribution of IQ between anywhere between 85 and 115 on a, on a scale up to 130. Okay, that's the first statement. Now, the reality is that gender, ethnicity, will actually have the name the same distribution when it comes to intelligence and abilities. And so if I'm running a company, a listed company, 
what would I actually limit myself in only selecting a subset of talents in leading and leading and promoting and, and driving business? And as well as you diversify your output as a company, you're always trying to find innovative new products. You should diversify your input when it comes to talent, diversity of thought and abilities at the table. So that's kind of one of the first part. Now, there is a lot of actually other elements that drive that value add. One of them is the bottom line. Actually, both academic, scholastic, and empirical evidences are showing that diversity at a top of company is a foreteller for corporate culture that ultimately drives better performance for companies. And I'll be happy to double-click on that and give you a sense of what I mean from a performance standpoint. And then, Nate, you have other elements that come along and make it a compelling business case. Uh, last year, we've seen the NASDAQ rules on diversity being approved by the SEC mandating companies that are listed to provide a disclosure on diversity across the board. So that's also actually a regulatory ask, and then coming from policymakers. Then you also have the client, client demand. Clients are asking to see more diverse team companies that are caring about these type of issues because they believe it's actually part of a good investment decision and decent society belief and, um, of how we, we should run a company. And I'm leaving aside the ethical and value imperative because they tend to be specific to individuals and may differ from region and, and places to places. But as far as the rest, bottom line impact, repetitional risk, client demand, regulatory framework, all of the above represent a compelling business case, Nate. So, so how does that manifest itself in the ETF then? If you look at what VDNI holds, boil that down yeah. for us with, with that as a backdrop. Sure, sure. And so the starting point is actually a broad U.S. exposure with a proxy of being the Russell 3000, if I were to give you a proxy, meaning all cap U.S. Then the process is the following, Nate. We start by actually identifying companies that display at least 35% of diversity at the board of companies and for NEOs, non-executive officers. Now, let me take a step back by saying that we partner with ISS ESG, which is the ESG arm of ISS, the proxy agent, to tap into their director and executive diversity data sets. And to give you a sense of the data set, Nate, they have around information of around 230,000 directors, so a very broad um, database. They have the tenure, they have the gender, ethnicity, and other factors that related to these individuals. And so first step, 35% combined of women and ethnically diverse directors. And then there is two additional rules that are very specific to each of the category. You need to have at least three distinct clinically diverse individual that are directors or NEOs, and you have the same rule for women. Okay? Now, why 35%? It's a question I'm often being asked, Nate. And the answer is the following. It comes down from actually management 101. If you have more than one individual from one category, you actually bring and expand the diversity of thought and the ability to provide your opinion and perspective at the board um, table. And so the 35% rule is something that has been highly documented in academia. And so we use the same threshold of 35%, okay? And result, you have an index comprised of around 470 securities, give or take, depending on the rebalancing. And that's what brings the ISS US Diversity Index as an index, okay? Mamadou, you did a good job of explaining the importance of diversified human capital uh, earlier. I think that makes sense intuitively to, to a lot of people. But can you just talk a little bit more about why diversity of leadership is important? And, and not from, I guess, what I would call 
the obvious standpoint. I would hope listeners of this podcast certainly appreciate the importance of diversity in our society. I'm talking more from a bottom line perspective. Like sure. when I think about you, you're a quantitative shop, right? So what yep. is the yep. what is the tangible data say on why diversity is good for companies? So that's the angle we took. We took the angle of thinking about what drives you know value for companies. Uh, the best example, if uh, if you look at you know information technology and you see the amount of talent that is coming from around the world, you realize that uh, tech companies are leveraging and tapping into diverse talents. This is actually you know very visible and something that has been done for years and years. And when we look at the performance of the underlying index, and obviously uh, the index is not investable as per se, and we launched the ETF in December. But let me give you a proxy, Nate. The index, the U.S. Diversity Index outperformed the Russell 3000 by 8.5% in 2021. Okay? Now, you may ask me, what is that moment? Kind of walk me through the attribution. What is the driver? Well, out of the 8.5%, 7.5% came from stock selection, and 1% came from sector misweight. Okay? Meaning that the index does what it is supposed to do, meaning selecting companies that tend to be diverse, that tend to be diverse from a leadership standpoint, and then the end result is actually a better performance. Now, there's back this return that I will not share in that podcast as per se. You can find in the longer history of the index on Bloomberg, but then it actually outperformed um, across the board for the past five years by around 200 basis points per annum based on the data. And then you have longer data that are actually uh, out there in academia. Uh, you have Cornell University who actually use the ISSI the days to look at into the advocacy of the signals over a longer time period, and they all are consistent with the following diversity at the top of company is a fortile for corporate culture, which drives better performance for companies. That's the business case from a pure quantitative standpoint. Mamadou, we only have about two minutes left. As I was looking at this ETF, I, I, I'm curious, what does it tell you that out of the entire universe of eligible U.S. companies, which you said, again, the, the Russell 3000, that's a good proxy here, only about 480 make the cut for your ETF. What, what does that tell you about the current state of diversity among publicly traded companies? Well, it tells me two things. First of all, we have a very rigorous process to actually select underlying securities. So that's why you actually have that limiting number. But second is that we have a long way to go. Uh-huh. for companies to actually be diverse at the top, right? And so I look at it in a very, I'm always optimistic. At the end of the day, I believe that once you disclose that information out there, then it's actually accessible and can be a catalyst for change. So that's the way I look at it. And last but not least, Nate, the question I'm being asked often is that where does it fit in a portfolio? Because at the end of the day, that's what matters for advisors and investors, right? First of all, it is a all-cap U.S. exposure. So it could be a complementary play or an addition to what you currently have as an exposure, knowing that the overlap in terms of names is limited because you only have a subset of names vis-a-vis the Russell 3000. That's number one. Number two, you are actually investing in an obituary index with a correlation of one with the Russell 3000 or the S&P 5, meaning that you're not taking kind of very directional risks. You also have that ability to invest and diversify your main capital. And last but not least is actually the performance uh, compelling business case that we all discussed today, Nate, that shows that corporate culture and performance are actually related, and there is value in looking at that through the lens of um, diversified human capital. Well, Mamadou, we're going to have to leave it there. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Congratulations on the launch of EDNI. Certainly wish you all the success. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me today.
That was Mamadou Abu Sar, co-founder and president of V-Square Quantitative Management. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. By the way, if you are still thinking about exchange in Miami, don't forget to use the code PRIME for 50% off your pass at exchangeetf.com. Next week, I will actually be down in Miami live from Exchange, ETF Conference of the Year. I'm going to bring you all of the highlights and other key takeaways. I'll be joined by both ETF Trends' Dave Nottig and Todd Rosenbluth. Until then, have a great week, everyone. <laughs>